Hi, Tuxtor. Welcome back. Hey, Adam. It's nice to see you again. And it is nice to be here again, talking about Java and everything in between <laughs> in the software ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. So the last time we had a chat about, uh, and also remember me about the Duke Adventures. And after the show, I had, I remembered that, um, I actually remembered you or one of your colleagues at the Java One uh, and also the Java.net series articles about the Duke Adventures with uh, nice pictures. So this is what I remember back then. And uh, what we ended with was uh, your uh, Mayan company, uh, like uh, Knowledge in the Cloud, right? Yeah, Knowledge in the Cloud, exactly. Exactly. And what you told me that um, you are still um, doing a lot of uh, Java, Jakarta, Java, e, and um, in the uh, combined with the cloud, is it true? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, you know, as any company in the world, you when you start a company like myself, we tend to evolve through the different processes and areas in the software development. Nowadays, I do a lot of software development with Jakarta and MicroProfile, but especially uh, what I see from on daily basis is a Jakarta slash focus on, on DevOps. Because as, he, as it has happened in other technologies, uh, Java has to evolve in order to, to meet the newer requirements that people have in the, in the software development sector. Yeah, what do you mean uh, focus on DevOps, Jakarta and focus on DevOps? What do you mean by that? With the time, I did like this jump between being only a software developer and consultant, and I have to be a IT consultant. And I, th I need. I think that both terms sound like are the same, but in the eyes of a software manager, and in the eyes also on a client that has nothing to do with software, uh, there are differences. Because, you know, there is a lot of literature about IT business and the value of IT, With that speaks about this chain of value in which you create technology, but this technology only has value if it manages to provide value for management processes or for management activities. And that's why I've seen that the focus of the IT departments and especially this kind of companies that need uh, technology is about how to speed up things, how to scale a lot. And I think DevOps has been recognized, at least by the IT sector, as one of the key characteristics in order to to attain this kind of scale and speed up the, the release and creation process. You know, I started Java. I don't know whether we had a chat about that, but um, uh, what uh, our uh, requirement was in 1996-7 uh, was uh, we had to build a content management system and management asked us, you know, which server do you need? And I said, okay, we need, I remember back then, it was like HP dealer. So we get an HP cube with uh, two or four cores And then we got the server. And they said, okay, then install the software on the server as, as fast as possible. What we did, and then we went to production. I mean, how it is different to now? Well, I think that the difference is that uh, the IT sector nowadays is key to create the business. You know, in the previous days, I probably experienced that in my first consultancy jobs. IT was like this thing that nobody got it, but in the end you have like this uh, specific kind of do things 
in which you didn't have interference from other areas. Let's name it interference. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, what I observe now is that, for instance, some of my clients have like these huge departments of marketing and sales. And nowadays, and different from like, let's say five to 10 years ago, they now work in, in coordination with the IT department because nowadays every marketing effort, every new release of a new tool has to do with IT, which uh, wasn't uh, the entire time back then. So I think that uh, at least in my clients, I observed that they have like these newer requirements in which they have business efforts but in order to support these business efforts, it means to create a new application to expose a backend that currently is running in a more traditional way to deploy applications. And uh, they tend to pressure a lot in order to do small fixes and small changes. Uh, back then, I was, I was accustomed to do a release per week at least. But nowadays, I observe that not only my clients, but also other organizations have like this tendency to create experimentation, to observe metrics about a, a given service and to do changes on the flight to say, okay, let's introduce a new service. Let's move this control here and there. And they tend to assume that once they've experienced a fast release cadence in any project, they will get the same in all other projects. So. It is becoming more frequently um, this kind of opportunities in which you see DevOps a lot. And especially when one company starts to do that, the other companies st start to wonder, well, how they attain that? They have a special source to do this. They have like a special technology. So I've seen a lot of shift in how we do software, at least in Latin America. I, I'm pretty sure that this started uh, a few years earlier in the US and Europe, but that's the common tendency I've served here. Okay. Then, then uh, this was actually a good point. The difference to from between now and back then is that we get faster release cycles. Or the expectation is. Yeah. Back then, uh, you know, we got uh, the, the marketing was different. Maybe this is marketing, marketing driven design. Back then, the expectation was we ship major releases and uh and you know we got the uh the version two then we got the version three and the version three was a major release so you know we developed in branch everything was secret and then everything was published at once and what changed yeah. in my opinion so there are no more two and three releases if you know like and if you take a look at Google Chrome or Firefox, they are just you know daily releases, so it is like a version one thousand or whatever. And um so uh what uh what 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 it means is that uh we get possibly even multiple releases a day. And in order to achieve that, you need a higher degree of automation. And then we can call it DevOps or uh, I mean, it would be better name would be like automated ops or whatever right so uh because uh if you know we cannot back then it was lots of manual processes and double checking but if we try to do the same by having uh, one release a day then we will introduce error and the manual process will just take too long right yeah the thing with uh, okay let's focus nowadays with java is that from my point of view, Java was a pioneer in this kind of practices and mm -hmm. good practices in order to do proper DevOps. 
because if you go to, let's say, Python's documentation or .NET's documentation in unit testing, uh, most of the times you will, be f you will be finding a reference about Java's and the JUnit style of testing. So I think, in my opinion, Java was a groundbreaking opportunity in order to do DevOps. Uh, nowadays, I'm not quite sure if that's the case, because nowadays you expect that from a lot of tools. But I recall the days in which we started to play with uh, continuous delivery and continuous integration with Cruise Control. It was a mess by fixing the Cruise Control. XML ex exactly, files I remember it with XML. Yeah, Cruise Control was prior to Jenkins. It was a huge. It was huge yeah. in Germany. Also, Cruise Control. Mm -hmm. And remember, yeah, Anthill. Actually, quite huge here. And Hill was also there. Yeah. Until cruise control exactly, and this was then. Then Jenkins came out. By the way, we had uh, also an episode with uh, the creator of Jenkins. It was an interesting talk with him about how Jenkins happened. Uh, I think I Kawaguchi. I, 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 I forgot how to pronounce his first name. I, I practiced a lot, but it's completely different than I thought. Kozuki, Kozuki, but this uh, Koske, Koske is pronounced. Your first name is Koske, and it is, uh, I, I know, 20 years long, I always said, you know, Kozuki, which was completely wrong. Koske is the, the Kawaguchi, exactly. It was the right pronunciation, nice guy. No, it, the thing is that uh, after continuous integration and continuous delivery, we started to perceive that, uh, you know, compiling, testing, and releasing was only uh, a chunk of the tasks that you also have to do in order to have this kind of agile, let's name it, uh, environment in which you are releasing frequently. Because, you know, when I did my first consultancy job in order to implement continuous delivery and continuous integration, uh, I discovered a lot of opportunities to improvements. We started like trainings in order to do proper testing. We started to use Cactus, I remember we used back then. Exactly, with the Java test beans. container. Yeah, exactly. But after that, we achieved this kind of speed in order to release properly using risk control, cactus, and you know we, we I think we were using subversion, but in the end, uh, we started to release a lot and we mm -hmm. did uh, we were accustomed to release daily, but when we started to release daily, we also had like these issues in which we were releasing daily and we lost control of the infrastructure. So I think that most of the DevOps literature actually emphasizes this fact in which once you achieve the speed up given by the continuous integration and continuous delivery, you also have to control this kind of situations in which you have to ensure you have the tools to monitor your applications. You have to, like this plan B in which uh, you have the, why, why if my infrastructure you know, is not completely right, why if I have, I don't know, some denial of service. So the operations became like the natural way to evolve this concept of releasing fast. And we are not only releasing fast, but also controlling properly this kind of fast release cadence that mm -hmm. we are living nowadays. Yeah. Um, first, to, 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 to your point, you're absolutely right. So in a second, I will come back to that. But to, to your first point, like Java was the first. This is also funny on, on different on in different uh, areas because um, I don't know whether you remember when Ruby came out, Ruby on Rails and then JavaScript. It says, okay, the type safeness doesn't matter because we would like to have the flexibility of, you know, not type safe programming languages. Huge discussion in the internet back then. And, and, and Ruby and JavaScript, they will just write more unit tests and they are as productive as Java. 
And then TypeScript happened because it uh, turned out that uh, it's actually really hard to implement large systems with plain JavaScript. And the cool story is uh, someone on Twitter. So the Twitter is a little bit, you know, I, I use the Twitter web client and I always forget that the Twitter web client, uh, there is no more, you know, uh, there's an algorithmic timeline. What I see is not like, you know, what I subscribe to, but I see whatever. And it, it for me, it appeared like someone writes to me like, you know, what is my opinion on uh, TypeScript versus ES6? And I wrote, okay, with Visual Studio Code, um, uh, uh, ES6 is as uh, type safe as TypeScript because it is TypeScript. And this you now started a storm uh, on Twitter because they say, hey, uh, you cannot use JavaScript. It's not type safe. And I said, I'm a Java programmer. I exactly know what type safe I mean, it's like, no, uh, TypeScript <laughs> is the, you forget JavaScript, you know, you stupid JavaScript programmer. It's okay, <laughs> it's strange. And uh, now it turned around. So now everyone says, okay, TypeScript is the great language, but actually uh, TypeScript is very similar to Java, right? So we could actually use uh, Java still. And it is very, very similar. So, so TypeScript replica took a lot of concepts from from Java, I would say, at the beginning, right? Right is far more than Java. And um, and also what you said with the unit tests and the automation, of course, it started with Java. I also remember in the early .NET days, they also tried, you know, always what we did in Java with the patents and, and the best practices. You found them in on the .NET conferences uh, two years later. Um, now it is, I would say, it is own community with own ideas. But at the beginning, it was almost the same uh, in the other uh, languages. You know, we had, uh, you know, the design uh, patterns were written in C++ first, then in Java, and then they came to other to, to, to other languages usually. This is what, what happened. And... Um, yeah, um, and uh, regarding what you said regarding the uh, controlling the infrastructure, so at the beginning, uh, so we had you know the boxes from Sun Microsystems and you know the expensive servers, and every everything had to be perfect. So we say okay, we have you know the slow release cadence, but if we ship it, it is consistent, and if you ship multiple times a day, uh, the failure will happen, and. Um, and uh, embrace the failure. This is what actually was also a huge change because we say, okay, we don't have to run, you know, on expensive sandboxes. We can also run on Intel or Raspis. It doesn't matter. And it should still work. So, and if you do this, then you have to be more resilient. And resilient, you have to rethink everything, right? So um, this is also a shift, I would say, uh, and continuous Shift. This is what um, interesting that uh, because you know um, w w what you're saying right now. Um, what uh, back then I remember Jakarta e servers. What I missed was uh, automation API. So what I wanted to have is a deployment API where I can uh, deploy applications to various application servers back and forth with versioning, for instance, right? So my idea was always the application server is the cloud. So I can say I push you know the war. And then I can automate the process by monitoring or whatever. So it was for me, the application server were serverless. So I can just you know push my stuff to application server, but I don't care about them. So this was my point of view. But it was uh, even worse. So it became deprecated, the deployment API towards the end of Jakarta E. And, uh, and then I saw, okay, this is it turns the other way. And uh, what I did then, I used Docker, interestingly. And... Um, and what you did with Cactus and 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 Cruise Control, I, my attempt was to use Docker as a automation platform or or or, or backup platform. So I use Docker, you know, 
instead of documented all my scripts, I had the Docker file. I said, okay, this Docker file contains whatever I need, and I just ship you know the entire environment. With all these opportunities, what I've seen today, that's also my opinion, but I've seen it a lot, is that nowadays it is more difficult to get into enterprise software development because nowadays you don't you only don't have to learn a new language, but you also have to learn deployment tools, construction tools, building tools. And when I compare the experience when I started with Java in Java Enterprise properly, uh, compared to new developers which I used to train, uh, nowadays they have a lot more difficulties in order to to start up with being productive because nowadays you have to install Docker. After that, you clone with Git, so you have to have good knowledge on Git and distributed version systems. After that, uh, support for a good testing framework, so you have to know your units and you know, spring testing, Archelian in the case of Java IE. And if that is not enough, you have to learn Docker. <laughs> and after that, probably Kubernetes. So in my opinion, software has become complex. <laughs> yeah. And this is why I like actually the serverless model. Because, and uh, what I do is I combine it with MicroProfile or Jakarta IE. So the interesting part is uh, I have a uh, lots of projects which have no old Java IE code. I mean, old Java E APIs, but the code is actually modern. So, you know, no indirections, just lean code. And what you can do is you can package the code as a Lambda, AWS Lambda, and run it as Lambda, and it works surprisingly well. And uh, on Lambda, this is like, it reminds me, you know, the early Java E days, because you only focus on the business logic, and you don't have to know to care about the Kubernetes. All the YAMLs, there is no YAML at all. There, is, there are no load balancers, maybe API gateway, and you are basically done. And uh, what's also interesting is, uh, this is why it is the perfect storm for me, you get the precise billing model where the management exactly sees, you know, this Lambda was invoked a million times and it cost me $10. $10. And, and this is uh, something fresh for the management and also back to the roots for the Java E developers. And, and funny fact, what we use in all my projects, we combine Maven with Java CDK Cloud Development Kit. So we are, the DevOps means we you only have to know no Maven, no YAML. And we can reuse parts of the infrastructure and store it in Nexus or Maven repository. So what it actually means is um, the first time we can even make, you know, the infrastructure reusable, and we can iteratively improve it, which is the, the first time I saw the benefit because Kubernetes for me is step backward. I, mean, I have to say, and what I don't get at all is running Kubernetes in public cloud. I mean, then why I should do this? Because all the cl public clouds already have their orchestrators. So I don't have you know, to run a cloud inside a cloud. Running Kubernetes on-premise is a different story. But using, no, I don't know whether you tried ever use you know, AKS, for instance, on on AWS or AKS on Azure, it is like, you know, you have to do a lot of tasks twice. You have to perform the task in Kubernetes, create a user, and you have to create a user on, on AWS, for instance, right? Yeah, the thing is, uh, I remember when Heroku started his their offer on Java, and I specifically remember the days of OpenShift, but not the current OpenShift, but yeah. the previous OpenShift. Yeah. I think that's where serverless started because it, yeah. my first experience with the classic OpenShift was to create this WAR file that, uh, you know, for sure it only rang on Wi-Fi or JBoss, 
But it actually made a lot of sense because you only pushed the word and everything was, you know, uh, Red Hat's responsibility. I mm -hmm. enjoy a lot my days on, on the classic OpenShift. I think that Kubernetes came to solve the, you know, uh, an issue that we actually didn't have in Java. And I experienced that in the Node.js area because in Java, we had like these huge application servers in which we de deployed and controlled a lot of applications. But in the Node.js area, they already started by doing only small development kits. So in order to create a complete application, which could be composed by, you know, 10, 12, 100 modules, they lack this mechanism in which they could deploy by itself uh, 20 to 30 modules and to control them perfectly. So I think Kubernetes, uh, in that sense, is a solution that started outside the, the JavaScope. It made much more sense for that kind of workloads. But in the end, you know, Java, in order to be relevant, has to adapt to offer that to teams that feel comfortable with Kubernetes because, uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of people that actually born, was born and raised in software development with Node.js and that's the only way they know to, to do software. That's my experience with the junior developers that I, I train. First, I will put to the show notes a blog post I've wrote in 2011. How to push Java 6 application to the cloud in five minutes. And what I did, I used the OpenShift Express and uh, I pushed a war to uh, to a um, as a source code, and it was automatically deployed behind the scenes. And there was the command as just read, you know, the post RHC create domain. So it was like you know the predecessor of the current OpenShift in 2011. And uh, uh, back to the uh, to the Kubernetes, what you said is. What, what I saw in Kubernetes is the solution to two problems Docker had. The first problem was that um, IP addresses, you know, uh, sorry, ports, that uh, uh, with without Kubernetes, you have to be careful if you launch multiple Docker containers in one box because, you know, the uh, ports will overlap. So this is solved nicely by Kubernetes. And the other thing was the uh, service. Uh, every service got an own IP address. We didn't change it. And then, of course, the ingress controller, the load balancer. Um, we had to. This was a minor thing because with the load balancer, we did it by, our, by ourselves with HR proxy or nginx, so not a big deal. But this was solved by Kubernetes. This is what I saw. You know, the Kubernetes is the killer use case for Kubernetes. But you know, the amount of YAML it was even worse than what we had in application servers. And what what I actually was so curious about because I attended you know the DevOps conferences, and, and for me it was like you know the fascination with Kubernetes, and they say, but Java, Java is complex. And for me, I mean, this was for me not understandable because Java E was relatively <laughs> yeah. simple. And if you compare, you know, <laughs> Java E was reasonable, was a little, there was almost at the end no XML, nothing. And Kubernetes was a huge YAML, you know, things without any reason, with uh, tags and uh, whatever. And everyone was fascinated by Kubernetes. And for me, it was, uh, yeah, I... I um, OpenShift is different because OpenShift is more user-friendly or rancher, right? But Kubernetes plane is hell on earth. I would say this is uh, like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, this is... Okay, if you if you like to tinker, th then go for it. But in my production project, you know, just to think about Kubernetes is like waste of time. Yeah, I think that one issue that I've seen in the deployments that I participated is that people 
don't have enough time to do the proper research on Kubernetes. So I've seen uh, some customers that are already in OpenShift or Rancher, but the thing, especially with Rancher, at least that's my observation, is that Rancher does a lot of abstractions. So that's really cool when you are doing your, you are actually accustomed to Kubernetes deployments. But I saw, uh, I saw a particular development in which they put a Tomcat inside a Docker image and inside that Docker image that put like five to six Spring Boot applications. Wow. Instead of, you know, dividing properly each one of these applications at its own container. So I think that the issue by doing directly to OpenShift or Rancher is that uh, you have to take the time to understand actually the Kubernetes deployment model, what's, what's the purpose of every object in the, in the model. And after that, uh, yeah, you, I will go also with a prepackaged uh, implementation. I've done deployments with vanilla Kubernetes because, you know, requirements, uh, crazy requirements that you find in, in the street, actually. But uh, it, it is pretty difficult, man, because you have to secure this kind of platform in which you have to do, go manually to Helm or actually to GitHub in order to find the right uh, version of some controller in order to place nice with your Kubernetes version. So it's actually doable, but I don't think it's feasible in the long run. So I think that's the my two positions in that because I've seen a lot of people not doing proper research in Kubernetes and doing traditional deployments over Kubernetes. But on the other side, uh, I am also... Uh, in the same page in which uh, doing Kubernetes vanilla is pretty hard and it's actually so complex that you will be probably doing this only to think not to do a production environment. Yeah, and uh, it makes sense running on premise, but what really I don't see I don't see a point at all to run in the cloud. For instance, if you uh, just pay, pick ECS, this is like the basic you know, AWS service, or ECS Fargate, it's like a Docker container orchestration. Or ACI, this is Asia Container Instances, or uh, I think it's called Docker Web Apps or Asia Asia Web Apps or something like this, like a Docker service. So if you, if you take a look at the proprietary configuration of AWS or Asia, it is more if it, to deploy a task on AWS ECS Fargate, maybe you need thirty lines of JSON. You know, there is like the, the the typical suspect you have to configure. You know, the uh, Docker container URI and the pod uh, and 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 CPU and whatever, and then you are basically done. If you compare it to 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 to, to Kubernetes, you get crazy. I mean, you get first you don't even have in vanilla Kubernetes you don't even have a Docker registry, right? So you will have to have to create your own Docker registry first, and then the ingress controller. And let's say you have everything, but still, the the amount of YAML will kill you. This is order of magnitude more than the proprietary Asia AWS or Azure counterpart. And to have, you know, portable deployment, I, I would even argue it is better to, 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 to pick the proprietary cloud service, AWS or Asia, and if in case you would like to move from AWS to Asia, you will be faster just, you know, port it directly without Kubernetes. Then, you know, maintaining Kubernetes on, on AWS and then hoping then then without any effort you can launch the same application in Asia. So I would say what will, what kill, will kill you in the cloud is the uh, you know the um, the security is completely different in Asia on AWS the security ideas and uh, and the and the all the cloud services and the networking are also different concepts 
And so I would say the Kubernetes solves, you know, the, the smallest problem, the portability of, 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 of Kubernetes in the cloud. Because what you really need in the cloud is something which reacts to your health checks, right? So if the Docker container is not alive, it will restart your Docker container. And if it's not ready, it will reroute the load balancer. This is what I need. And there are, you know, a way easier uh, services in the cloud to do this than uh, than Kubernetes. I am also in the opinion that it depends on application size. And that's the probably worst way to implement Kubernetes because uh, I had a prior client uh, in which we decided to just skip Kubernetes and go directly to Docker, Docker Compose, actually, because it was mm -hmm. easier. Mm -hmm. But it, this was because... Uh, the, his applications were basically a complete backend that were, was in development during 11 years, I guess. That's my guess. And a couple of frontends mixed between Java server faces, AngularJS, and newer Angular. And when I started to explain to them that their actual infrastructure will be recreated in order to just provide a platform to install Kubernetes, they were like, oh man, this, this seems quite complex. There is, okay, this is just one application. We don't have to, we actually are not obligated to have like this uh, reactive application things in which we have the stability, the fault tolerance, because we are have, we have only a monolith and this monolith so far is enough for the, for the, or use case. So yeah, I think depends. And most of the times, uh, that's hard to say, but most of the software architects will be probably be better if they choose a proprietary way to do it or a simpler way to do it, like yep. Docker Compose. I've, I've actually done a lot more deployments with Docker Compose than with, if compared to Kubernetes. And I think that results uh, have been better because the applications were much simpler and Kubernetes was not justified. Yeah, right. Um, uh, we have an HI application here. Uh, one of my clients we are running for several years. It's actually Tommy. And, um, but this is, I would say it's a microservice, but it's a monolithic one. It is a small one, but this is just one. And it runs on two Docker containers, and we have, I forgot, either HI proxy or Nginx in the front, and this is a highly available system, and everyone is super happy with it. It's simple, and, uh, you know, the Java developer started with Java and Tommy, and, you know, the Docker came just in with the, with the load balancer. They just did it without thinking about that. But in this particular case, you know, porting this to Kubernetes, I, I couldn't even imagine in this in this company. I mean, this 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 this, this they will ask me why we are doing this. It 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 works just fine. Um, yeah, this is also my my experience. And um, another question I would like to ask you because um, I don't know what's what's the story in Guatemala, but um, if uh, we did several so last year, uh, I've also working as a consultant as, as as you, and I was asking all my clients, what do we do? We have some Java workloads, we would like to move it to the clouds. Which options do we have? And if you do it, the calculation for Kubernetes, it becomes very expensive. So if we did it upfront with the price calculator, it just died. I mean, there was no case last year where the client said, okay, we just do Kubernetes. Because um, what you shouldn't forget, if you have Kubernetes once, let's say in production environment, it's fine. But you will need an int environment as well you will probably need a dev environment as well. And the next question is what the developers are doing. Of course, they could try to replicate the entire Kubernetes environment locally, but if this runs in the cloud, 
it is not enough to have Kubernetes. You you need the 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 security. You need you know to, you will, would like to test your queues, SNS, SQS, or whatever you have around your Kubernetes. And um, with serverless, it is absolutely possible that every developer gets in complete environment, and it will cost you almost nothing per month because you know you pay per invocation for development. It's not like you get you know millions of transactions per per month. This is more like you get hundreds or thousands of transactions per month, and this costs cost almost nothing. So, what is the situation, the economic point of, point of view? Is this like uh, in Guatemala? Is you can just run Kubernetes, or 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 are your clients more cost sensitive? You know, the difficult part of this kind of projects is that you actually have to demonstrate that they need DevOps, not just Kubernetes. Because I'm not sure why, but my experience here in Latin America is that. Kubernetes is getting like this, let's say, uh, mindset in which people is actually to understand Kubernetes as a way to replace system administrators or to reduce downtimes. But in the end, the difficult part of this kind of projects is to actually, you know, uh, go and be frank with the client and say, well, man, Uh, for starters, you don't have DevOps. You don't have like this whole coverage of testing. You don't have pipelines moving the code to production. And if you start with Kubernetes with this, you actually will be getting more trouble because you have to prepare a container. As you said, you have to go send this to any registry. You have to create this whole automation infrastructure in order to be productive with Kubernetes. So when we start this kind of projects, We actually have rejected some consultancy jobs because of this, because in the long run, it doesn't pay to use only Kubernetes. You have to be part of a culture in which you have DevOps, you have, let's say, not not 100% of testing, but at least regression testing in you know, uh, critical parts of the application. But on the other side, uh, Most of my clients uh, come from enterprise sectors, being banks, uh, huge enterprises, and government. And one particular situation in this kind of areas is that they are already accustomed to run custom workloads. So for them, Kubernetes is not the same as cloud. It's, uh, as I said, a way to you know avoid some to restart the server every time the application fails. Let's simplify it like that. But uh, when the people that actually has these on-premise infrastructures want to go to Kubernetes, they they saw this situation like a way easier if you compare to uh, someone that is already deploying in the cloud. Because when you go from traditional deployment model in the cloud to going to cloud-native slash Kubernetes deployment, you actually have to secure resources for not only the Kubernetes runners itself, but also for the managers, for the load balancers, for the registry, for the pipelines. So you will be spending a lot more. I have one exception on this. It's because I had a client of mine that has this small Kubernetes cluster, but he also has like this 20 servers, plus minus five, running at Linode. So that's where I discovered that in Linode, you actually pay the same billing for one server for a particular VPS, but also for the same server in a Kubernetes cluster. So they created a mini cluster based on Linode. And when you do this kind of Kubernetes implementation on Linode, they actually include like the configuration of the cluster. So they pay like two or three servers more in order to do the management. 
to the managers. I'm not affiliated to Linode, but I discovered that recently. So, but Linode is a great uh, service. Linode and Digital Ocean. Is yeah, actually, yeah, they're both actually great, prof, uh, great services. Mm -hmm. No, the thing is, uh, uh, I think in the following years we will be seeing this kind of uh, cheaper alternative to traditional clouds, in which they also have support for this kind of infrastructure. That was the first time I saw uh, Kubernetes cluster based on the same pricing in, if compared to virtual private servers. So I think that will be the tendency, at least for the alternative cloud providers, because mm -hmm. uh, they have to compete some, in some way to, the, to Amazon and Oracle and Azure. Actually, I'm, I'm not a huge cloud fan because I'm still, you know, if you have your on-premise infrastructure, you can run your workloads cheaper and uh, simpler because you can do whatever you like, right? So first, and it's going to be cheap because the server infrastructure is already there. If we go to the cloud, usually we have our reasons. And interestingly, there are uh, in the recent years, there were only two reasons. The first reason was uh, disaster recovery or HA. So what we needed is two data centers, which are separated, and they are close enough to have low latency, but far enough, you know, to uh, to have uh, DR this disaster recovery, it is really hard to achieve this with usual data centers. And the next one, strangely enough, is security. Why? Because all the public clouds are highly automated, so you can have en encryption everywhere, at rest and in transit, with your own keys, or you can rotate the keys. You know, the certificate management is automated and soft. So for DevOps, it's a cloud more or less paradise because you can automate everything from scratch, right? Now, if you get Kubernetes, Kubernetes is, I would say, an own cloud because Kubernetes is, you don't need anything else if you have Kubernetes. You can run everything in Kubernetes. If you run Kubernetes in the cloud, then you get the Kubernetes automation plus the cloud automation. So if you go to AWS, you get CDK for AWS plus CDK for Kubernetes, which becomes to be crazy because the Kubernetes becomes like a meta cloud, which has to do something in addition to, to the normal cloud. And what I already saw in projects where they run Kubernetes on public cloud and they had trouble, you know, with IAM policies, so they just hard-coded the, 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 the access keys, the credentials, because they, 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 they couldn't make it work with Kubernetes. I mean, of course, this is, of course, education, but, uh, you know, if you run AWS Lambda or even EC2 or ECS Fargate, it's a solved problem. Because I mean, this is like IAM policy. It is attached to the instance or to the, to the lambda, and 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 it works. So, with the cloud native managed service or managed services, right? The managed services which are already there in the cloud. My observation is the entire security is finer grained. So we can access, you know, just a table or just even um, a row in the table because it is everything is exposed as a service. If we have, let's say, Kubernetes with relational database, it is more or less, you know, like a monolith in the cloud again, because everything, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, uh, which is, um, I would say, I wouldn't call it cloud native. This is like, you know, almost like running VMware on, on AWS, right? Yeah, you know, there is a particular motivation here in Latin America besides the two that you mentioned, and people tend to go to the cloud because of bandwidth. Because it yeah. is cheaper to acquire bandwidth with a server in the US if compared to actually paying a, an InfiniBand or any kind of connection here in Guatemala. But I think that's the ruling all over Latin America, probably with the exception of Mexico and Brazil. 
But, uh, you know, the transition to the cloud, most of the times is not only motivated by the, well, I will be spending less. I've, I work with clients that actually know that they will be spending more on the cloud, but they still pay it because of the bandwidth, because uh, they have like this kind of guarantee that, okay, they, we are running on Amazon data centers, Azure data centers. Mm -hmm. And whenever we do, we still have more bandwidth if compared to the bandwidth here in Guatemala. So that's a particular situation, but that also happens. You're right, <laughs> even, even Germany. It's, it's funny. What do you think? If you're in the cloud, the bandwidth is crazy. So I remember I downloaded like 100 megs, and this was like a second. I think it it broke. So it, it I think it is impossible in that time, you know. And this was like uh, this was a fraction. It was just there. So this, this is crazy. So the bandwidth is actually also here a difference, and. Um, What's what's different to Guatemala is uh, in Europe, uh, my clients still believe that cloud is going to be cheaper than uh, on-premise. I, I don't know why, but they, they are still believe. And if I tell them, okay, actually you will pay more, but you have more possibilities, they, they don't believe me. So, okay, no, it's going to be cheaper because um, I don't know why. And, um, and, and then, you know, after the first bills, uh, then we get, you know, I call it cost-driven, architectures or cost-driven development is okay <laughs> how, how to optimize the entire thing to make it more cost effective and uh, what i also see in the recent uh, before clouds we you know we profiled application with uh, j visual vm or with the you know the j rocket um, how it's called the java mission control and uh, right now we, we really no kidding we profile the application after amazon bill so we see you know what's costs and we see okay we have the uh, vpc traffic so we can eliminate maybe nuts or whatever so uh, we do a lot of cost optimization just to you know after seeing the bill and um and um also big difference right so the architecture is no more good and bad because um we said you know 20 years ago on paper is good that we build modular system in 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 clouds it has to the costs have to be you know manageable it cannot the the, the cost just cannot explode One thing I think that uh, also uh, companies should consider is the cost on the human side. You know, my impression is that when you start this kind of cloud-native projects in which you will be doing this transition from traditional monoliths to cloud-native, you are actually meaning I am doing cloud-native practices. And as you stated previously, uh, from Another point of view, doing Java EE or traditional Java development, it was easier because you only have to learn Java and the Java way to do things. Uh -huh. When I started to do this kind of assessment in companies, one of the facts that, all, that always arise in this kind of implementation is, okay, we have to do trainings. And my clients say, why? We already have Java developers. Okay, you have traditional Java developers, but one, one way or another, Uh, you have to update the knowledge of the of your people. This will cost you money because this yeah. kind of training <laughs> costs money, and they have to learn about how to do proper uh, properly software development with Docker, how to package an application in order to not explode the Docker registry by putting JVM in in each commit. So these kind of practices are also money. So I think in the end, one consideration that is really important in starting this kind of projects is to consider that not every Java developer is the same because we have like these different backgrounds and different experiences. And in the beginning of every project, I I was do the same kind of trainings. These kind of trainings have this cost. 
And any manager has to do this balance between, okay, I will do this kind of investment. The cloud will be probably expensive compared to having this kind of infrastructure on premises. But I also have to consider, I have to train my people. I have to probably create new new jobs in order to do uh, releasing engineering and DevOps engineering. So yeah, I think it, in the long run, it depends how do you manage to, to do this kind of migration projects. Yeah, and even if you mentioned right now, it's trivial. You know, packaging Docker container is, is, is fairly trivial. I, mean, I would say you can do it fairly fast, but if you go to the cloud, you would actually have to start with VPCs. And what people are surprised yeah. that if you start with VPC, you have to explain CIDRs first, you know, and they say, what CIDR? What is CIDR? So, okay, you know, the, the, the sub-NASC for, for IP addresses. Then you will have to, to explain subnets. And then, no kidding, actually, routing. You, you, you will need a basic understanding of routing because without routing, you, you, you won't even be able to, to talk to the internet, right? So uh, you, you at least you know you will have to, to be able to set up the default route. And now the question is, I don't know what's the situation in Guatemala, but uh, in, in Europe, in most of my clients, we are running uh, private VPCs. Private VPCs is like extension. I think in Guatemala, it's the same thing. Yeah? Uh, I think it depends on the company. But, uh, you know, I think that the first motivation in order to run private VPC is because of the databases. Because when you create something, let's say in Amazon, you actually have like this option to do it over DynamoDB, mm -hmm. but you actually have the opportunity to run it in the Amazon-like implementations of MySQL and Postgres yeah, or whatever. Right. But when, when you speak about this kind of limitations of public VPCs, especially that you actually could, uh, you know, do a connection directly to, to the database, is when people start to think about, well, maybe do you have another option in order to yeah. make the database unreachable? Okay, there is a VPC, but actually you have to pay a lot more in order to run the VPC because the traffic in on the VPC and the private VPC will be metered and depending on your need will be probably being the, the you know, with this won't be cheaper because you have a lot of traffic, you have a lot of clients, and each request that goes from your platform to the database will be expensive if compared to, to the public PVC. But I observe, at least in my opinion, that people tend to do that investment just because of security. Not sure if yeah. that's the proper way to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's proper way. But anyway. even more extreme in, in, in my cases, we don't have NATs, so we have just a private VPC. And then via VPN or Direct Connect, the clients are talking directly to the private VPC. So uh, the cloud becomes okay. like hybrid cloud, like extension from own data center. This is the huge uh, companies. Uh, I would say for all, I would say per five projects, maybe there is one with public VPC and all the others, they are not uh, available from public internet. They are only available from direct connection through the uh, company data center. So the cloud acts as a extension of the of the of the data center. So and if you do this, then it becomes even more interesting. You know why? Because let's try you know from this VPC to access S3, let's say, or whatever. It's impossible because you, this is private. So and and this S3 actually runs you know in a, in a in a public part of the of the cloud. So um, yo, what you will have to do is you will have to, to set up in the VPC endpoints and gateways in order you know, to access yeah. all the services. And um, 
I would say this kind of training is far more complicated than Docker. So if you, if you explain this, no one expects such a thing if, if you go to the cloud. And this was just an example of AWS because I always you know pick AWS because AWS was first. I would say it was the first cloud ever. And uh, then uh, the other came. But uh, Asia is almost an identical situation. So in Asia, it's just different names. It's not Direct Connect. It's called Express Route, but it's the same technology. And, um, and um, if you do it in the cloud-native way, it is not trivial, you know, just to learn the basics. And if they know the, all the IP addresses and all the gateways, then, you know, the, the most funky thing ca- uh, comes in is the security. You know, IAM policies, IAM roles, uh, groups, you know, uh, assume role, and, um, and, and, and I mean, yeah, the stuff is, as you said, the, st- the stuff is complex. And learning this is, um, is a good thing. But if you run Kubernetes, you will have to know the IAM roles, which are for managed services, plus the user management in Kubernetes inside. And this is what I don't get anymore. So, okay, why now I have to learn everything twice? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that situation. So yeah, yeah, I probably that was I was me- I was I meant when I said uh, to do the to do software nowadays in the cloud native way, mm-hmm. it is actually difficult. So when I I speak with juniors that came out fresh fresh from college, they say, okay, we know Amazon. Okay, what do you think about Amazon? Okay, it's good because we did like this small application that connects directly to DynamoDB. Because that's a whole different way to do applications in Amazon in which you run, you know, a serverless, a Lambda function connecting directly in a public VPC with Dynamo. But when you go directly to enterprises with different cultures, different requirements, and most importantly, different, different compliance policies, you will be finding these kind of issues that you are, yeah. you're telling. So I think it is, it is quite, quite difficult to do. And, you know, the, the newer software development teams actually have to have this kind of strong foundations on Linux, uh, at least compared to to the previous era in which you were fine if you only knew Java and you do mm-hmm. uh, easier software development. Let's name it like that. But even DynamoDB, if you if you take a look at DynamoDB, the single table design, the idea behind that you put you know the, everything in one table, is not trivial. So I mean, the writing a yeah. simplistic <laughs> DynamoDB application. Of course, it's simple. I can just, you know, behave like it, it were a hash map, but it's not maintainable. But if you do it the right way with DynamoDB, the first question is, you know, RCUs and WCUs or autoscaling. So what, what to pick, you know, and if, if you do it properly, it's also not trivial. And and by the way, very, very similar to back then what we had in Java E to thinking about, you know, the uh, the clustering is so actually the same concepts, you know, reapplied to to distributed computing, a bit differently. Nice. The 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 discussion went, you know, in complete different direction. I was surprised, but it was a uh, nice to chat with you. <laughs> but um, another story is I don't know whether you are aware of it. You know the Payara Cloud. Ah, uh, yeah. I I actually spoke with the Payara guys about it. I know that it is. Uh, I will say in a particular way. A similar offer that OpenShift had in the past, in which you only put your word to deploy. Mm-hmm. Under the hood, they had like this implementation of Kubernetes, and most importantly, they are running like this kind of beta tests in order to see how it goes in the in real environments. 
I am actually expecting that, that service, not only because I do Java IE development, but because I have clients that are already running in Glasses on, on PyR. So I think this option could be could be a good fit for them. Yeah, uh, but what I, I really I like expect it to work. What I really like about that is um you know you are aware of Quarkus, right? Yeah. I use Quarkus a lot too. Yeah, and Quarkus is great. But Payara Cloud is the exact opposite of Quarkus. This is what I like about it, right? So Quarkus is like, you know, you, you there is no deployment and you run everything or deployment happens at build time and you run a very simple uh, bytecode on whatever, whenever, wherever you like. And the Payara Cloud is actually a genius implementation of clustering of application servers. So they say, you know, so what Quarkus was like, uh, rethinking Whitefly and uh, removing the deployment. And the strategy of Payara is rethinking application servers and go to the next level of application servers and make the clustering completely crazy, right? What I mean by that is what, what they are doing is there's like the Payara server, the, uh, the I'll say the clustering controller, whatever you call it. And this is the Kubernetes operator. This is the crazy part. And they have Payara micros, <laughs> And the Payara micros are the worker nodes. And what they did back then with the cluster, now they do with Kubernetes. So the clustering means with the Payara cluster, the admin server says, I need another worker node. It's just you know, another uh, Kubernetes node starts up with Payara micro and is ready you know, for traffic, which is genius if you think about this. This is actually the, the killer use case for Kubernetes, what they did. So they, they, they use Kubernetes behind the scenes but if you use Payara Cloud, you don't see nothing about Kubernetes, which I even more appreciate. No YAML, nothing. You can just upload your war, and it gets distributed um, across the Payara micros. And um, you get your own DNS uh, DNS uh, thing on, and so forth. So I had I also chat with them, and I said, okay, what well, would be great to have an API, automation API, so we could use Terraform or any kind of automation, you know, just to automate the entire deployment. But this is for me what uh, what cloud always was the idea of the cloud that I write you know my thin war my logic and push it somewhere and it just works, and um, and and this is what I really appreciate because right now we have two great technology both are best practices and both are completely opposite of each other you know Quarkus and Para Cloud. Yeah, I think I, I've not tested it because, you know, there is this kind of beta situation in which I know that part, but uh, I am well in, you know, I am trying to, I'm hoping, I think that's the right verb to use to today make it public in order to, to give it a try because, uh, you know, it, this kind of problems that you... I, 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 we had a nice podcast and I, you know, uh, told you that you have pinged them and maybe you get a beta access. Yeah, <laughs> I'll try to. <laughs> it sounds very interesting, and, and not only interesting but also compelling for my use cases in which I could. I think I could do a a good feedback about it because I work nowadays a lot in this kind of migrations in which, you know, uh, the cloud native era has been interesting for me because I'm not only doing software development, which I do um, on daily basis, but I am also learning about a lot of culture about how to uplift, uh, you know, this kind of existing infrastructure, how to do it properly, how to fragment it, and most importantly, how to lead this kind of efforts. Because, uh, you know, one of the anti-patterns that I've seen a lot in software development implementations in Cloud Native is to start fragmenting early only by orchestration. 
So in only bioacrestation, you don't have like this boost of communication, reactive communication, and most importantly, fault tolerance on distributed computing. But in the end, you have distributed computing. So I think that's the another difficult part in cloud native migrations. If you go all over the manual about going cloud native, you have to be prepared to do uh, distribute computing properly. And orchestration will be a solution maybe for some use, use cases, but in the end you will be needing some Kafka rabbits or some mean of communication and compensation of transaction, which makes more difficult the, the, you know, the arts of creating software for the cloud. But uh, that's the reality that I'm facing nowadays. Or what we also do, we, tr we ship monolith. I would say yeah. you're, you're shipping monolith, nothing wrong with it. And um, if you make, you know, your application larger. So um, right now we have a single Lambda function, and I think there are already 300 classes inside the Lambda function, which is a complete anti-pattern if you take a look at the uh, architecture documentation. But at the response time of 50 milliseconds, 50 milliseconds, We, we can run the entire Quarkus locally or in Lambda, it doesn't matter, and uh, everyone is happy. I mean, uh, if you would split the Lambda to 20 Lambdas, everything is going to be more complex, and I wouldn't see a single benefit for my client. Yeah, that's true. That's also true. And are you using, uh, you know, GraalVM native compilation or just plain old Java? Uh, plain old Java. The, the funny thing is, yeah. if you run uh, plain old Java, The cold start, the first invocation is a little bit worse, but the subsequent calls are uh, faster and faster because of JVM compilation and GraalVM com uh, com um, optimizes only once. So over time, the JVM could be even cheaper if this is on Amazon Coretto running, right? And um, what we will probably do on uh, in production is we will buy concurrent um, as provisioned concurrency. You can keep, you know, the equation, your your uh, function hot. You will pay a little bit for it, but it's a fraction of Kubernetes. So I mean, this is that doesn't matter if in it, and there will be no cold start, and uh, and um, yeah, and uh, we don't have to care about the infrastructure, which is also good for security because we don't have to patch the entire thing. It just runs, and we have, don't have to 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 pay for the control plane. But um, I'm, I'm actually, my observation is that the size of uh, the Lambda function actually does matter. Because, uh, as you said, yeah. the bandwidth is, is crazy fast. So whether you, you pull from the uh, Docker registry, you know, 5 megs or 6 megs, it doesn't matter. But 6 megs in Java is like crazy amount of bytecode. So it doesn't matter. Except, of course, you shouldn't pull, you know, the entire internet of of uh, dependencies. And with Quarkus, there is no reflection. So the startup time is crazy fast. So it it, it, it just works. And uh, and this is what I, what all, actually in all my, my recent cloud projects where I could influence the, the architecture are actually serverless. So uh, we, we paying for what we use. This means serverless. That, that makes sense to me. You know, I've done not so many implementations in serverless. Some have been done with Node.js, to be fair. Mm -hmm. And I've been, I've been using, uh, you know, Quarkus, but in small projects, it's projects that are just starting. But I think that that will be the tendency. And not only for Java, mm -hmm. because many of these decisions are not architecture decisions, are actually business decisions. And many of the IT publications for the business sector are actually focused on Well, the next big thing will be backend as a service in which serverless is, you know, the 
the new key of the block and mm -hmm. the opportunity to do software development processing in the cloud without all of the complexities of doing it over a virtual private server or any of the other offers in which you could run your your implementations. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think I will be doing a lot of serverless in the in the following months, I hope. <laughs> but so far I think it, it is a viable option to do to do Java IE de deployment. Yeah. And my serverless is Java or MicroProfile. So the bytecode so if you like, take a look at my GitHub account. Quarkus CDK Lambda, I think is the name of the project. And if you take a look on this, this is a pure Java deployment. And the uh, the front end or the service is a um, microprofile JaxOS front end. And you can have as many endpoints as you like, but at the end of the day, it is an AWS Lambda. So there is actually, from code perspective, almost no difference, except static works differently. And uh, all the endpoints are application scoped. This is the major difference. But uh, dependency injection, everything works as expected. So actually, it looks like an old Glassfish application. So there's no difference. Oh, cool. And what oh, cool. uh, what Java, uh, what is interesting is serverless in Java, Java is crazy fast. Java is faster than Python and uh, Node.js. And uh, in serverless, business is everything. So running costs are important. And if Java executes faster, Java is cheaper. And also, yeah. not, not that known fact is uh, that in order to get more CPU, you have to buy more RAM. So RAM is not an issue in serverless because uh, in order to have one CPU, you have to buy two gigs of RAM. And if you buy two gigs of RAM, you get the, the usually in Java the most cost-effective option because you get one full vCPU. And uh, with two gig of RAM, is a plenty of RAM. So you can run, you know, Quarkus, whatever you like inside with two gigs of RAM. It doesn't matter. You don't have, you know, to implement this with Node.js, Python, or whatever. And also, Java dependencies are easier to manage than Python's, for instance. So I would say, if you if you look yeah, at yeah, reasonably, that's that's true. Yeah, um, I would say um, in 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 Java could have a huge comeback the, the uh, right now, and uh, um, I would say my clients are happy, and uh, I just you know there's uh, the the one busiest years just you know to porting old applications with minor modifications as serverless to the cloud. Yeah, no, you, that's an interesting fact, actually, because uh, my experience hasn't been with serverless, but has been mostly with Kubernetes and this kind of Kubernetes as a service in clouds. But the thing that my clients love about Java is that their actual implementations being with Glassfish, Wi-Fi, or whatever application server they use, they could actually do it fast in order to not just create the containers to the deploy on the cloud because any major application server nowadays has these kind of micro versions, mm -hmm. but also because the knowledge they could take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. So I've been with companies that had like this tradition of doing 10, 12 years on Java E development. And they they stay happy with it because nowadays they could have like this option of okay, this could be probably will be easier just to port my code from Glassfish to Pyar Micro. But I want to do something with, let's say, a Kubernetes operator. I could do it directly with Quarkus or Helidon from Oracle. But we have this plethora of options that are actually making the, the Java EE ecosystem particularly pretty strong, a strong opportunity to do cloud-native development. Yeah. Perfect. So it was a nice discussion again with you. So um, we can meet anytime and have another discussion in complete 
unexpected topic. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you. I think that that's the that's the, these are the better discussions because we have like a lot of shared ideas and we have the time to discuss it. And probably people could take advantage of some or, or another idea and to know that Java is actually a pretty popular space right now in the cloud native area. It doesn't matter if you're doing Kubernetes, you're doing serverless, it is a, a good way to do software nowadays. Yeah, perfect. Where people can find you? There's, of course, how it's called Nabe, Nabemik, of course, right? Yeah, Nabemik, uh, the Mayan name <laughs> is actually, if you look Tuxter, I think it, was, it will be actually easier because if yeah. you look Tuxter in Google, I will be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I am this is why I introduced us Tuxter. <laughs> Yeah, but besides that, you could actually look for my company in Avenic. We are mostly focused on Latin America, but uh, with we have one or another story to share with uh, with any kind of implementer about what things we did right, what things we did wrong in doing this kind of. Are you allowed to introduce your one of your clients or all NDAs? I, I'm not allowed to speak about my clients. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure mostly are under NDAs, but I work it mostly with government institutions like big government institutions in Guatemala. And okay. under NDAs, I could discuss them, but I'm okay. not quite sure and I want to get in trouble. The same right here. Now. The same here. From outside, I'm looking like jobless because whatever I work for, you know, I have to sign NDA first. Yeah, that's the. I, I probably have 100 NDAs running right now. <laughs> yeah, but well, some companies have multiple NDAs. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and again, it was nice to chat with you, Adam. And your actual name is Victor? Victor is a nice to pronounce. And and the last name? Orozco. Orozco. He's pretty Spanish. Orozco. Yeah. Orozco. Perfect. So see you next time. Okay. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye. Bye.